Shutting her eyes and praying she wouldn't embarrass herself by choking on the drink, Rosamond took a cautious sip. All at once, something light and wondrous wrapped itself around her tongue and travelled down her throat in a sweet river of molten marvel. Her eyes flew open, followed by her mouth. A long, sweet breath escaped and her lips curved in a beatific smile. Slowly she licked her lips, trying to recapture the taste and understand it. Colours leapt into her head. She thought of the deep purple of her mother's favourite hat, the soft velvet of the puppet show's curtains, the stars above Beerwood sparkling as if just for her, winking and blinking against their onyx backdrop. She recalled birdsong, the hum of bees in summer, and before she could prevent it, a burble of laughter escaped, rising from the same spot the chocolate now pulled, lifting her heart and exploding like tiny bubbles that sat atop the drink. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Karen Brooks reading from her new historical fiction novel, The Chocolate Maker's Wife, from a section in which her character, Rosamond Tompkins, tries chocolate for the first time. The book is set in 17th century England and follows Rosamond, a bold young woman born into poverty who ends up presiding over a luxurious chocolate house where the well-to-do gather to sip on this sweet new drink which apparently has desirable properties far beyond its delicious taste. Karen is phoning in to chat about her book. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Angus. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, So among many other things, you've worked as an actor, an army officer, an academic, an agony aunt, and of course, a writer. Um, I absolutely love that the author bio on your website is essentially just a list of insults you've had hurled at you over the years. Um, you, You got called the grunge queen by former Queensland Premier Wayne Goss, a witch by a pastor, and a left wing loopy academic with no testosterone on radio in Tasmania. Um, what have you been doing to inspire such uh, spirited language to be directed towards you? I think just having daring to have an opinion, <laughs> to be blunt. Yeah, I, I can add to that list now, believe you me. Um, no, it's my – I have a weekly column with a, a, a newspaper and um, it's interesting – uh, how people uh, become inspired to write to you or I guess share their views on your opinion. But what they do is they make it quite personal. So, you know, the ad hominem attack, attack the person, not the argument. So, yeah, that, that that's sort of the tame of things that have been said to me. Yeah, far out. Um, but you have had such a varied career just within writing. You've done so much. So what actually led you to start taking on historical fiction? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I, I've always been fascinated with history. And as an academic, because I was an academic, well, I sort of still am, I guess, in some ways for 20 years, though, working in a university. And you use a particular part of your brain. And, and, and I love I love reading. I've always been a passionate reader, you know, devouring books, um, many, many books every week. And um, I don't know, I think I just needed to work that other part of my brain, that creative part of my brain. And the beautiful marriage of of, of factual history and fiction just seemed to suit me. And um, 
my wonderful agent, Sawa Anthony, just encouraged me. I was writing fantasy initially and she said, look, you, you spend so much time with the history. Why don't you just write straight historical fiction? So it was with a bit of sadness I left behind the realm of fantasy. I still read it um, and moved into historical fiction and I feel so at home there. I really love it. With your last few books, uh, you've taken a slightly different approach to most historical fiction writers and you say that rather than focusing on the rich and royal and, you know, nobility, you tell the stories of women in trade. Why do you take this approach? Yeah, it, it's it's a funny thing how that happened. I think because, well, there's already some excellent writers writing about the royalty, the nobility, the rich, and, you know, history was in their hands because they were the record keepers as well. And um, the, but the majority of people weren't rich or noble. And I often wondered what their stories were. And, and of course, we're reclaiming those through a whole variety of means. There's great historians doing work in those fields, but there's not much fiction being written about that. So I don't know, it was sort of an accident because I decided I wanted to write about um, brewing because when I looked into the making of ale and beer, I discovered that women were in fact the ale makers. So um, long before men ever got involved with it, apart from with religious houses being the exception. So that's how it all started through beer, believe it or not, um, and, and which I don't drink. But, but anyway, um, I, I, I do taste it. But so what, what really struck me too was when I was researching that particular novel, there was a quote by an historian um, and she said, when a venture prospers, women fade from the scene. So in other words, once a trade becomes really profitable, men moved in and pushed the women out. <laughs> and so I started thinking about that. But I also thought we know that men were involved in so many different trades, that that's just how we've been taught history. But clearly there were women there beside them. They were 50% of the population and men died, widows took over. You look at the early guild records in England and across Europe and women were there. And whilst it took a long time for their, them to be present on the registers, they were doing the work, they were doing the labour. They didn't have the luxury of just being at home to look after the children. And please, nobody get offended by that. I'm a mum, I know it's a really hard job, what I mean in those days. So they they worked side by side with their husbands and were really very, very experienced. And in um, times of war or famine or plague or any other sort of um, crisis, they stepped up and they ran the business. So I thought, okay, there are loads of gaps and silences there in history. I think I'm going to write about those. <laughs> That's how it started. Excellent. Um, so people could probably guess what sort of trade uh, the chocolate maker's wife centres on. What other trades have you investigated in these sorts of books? Yeah, um, the book after the Brewers tells the locksmith's daughter. That's where you got daughter from. And so I looked at lock picking, but also spying because. Whilst in that book, that's set during Elizabethan times, my my heroine is um, very unique and one of the only female spies. Um, there was a little bit later than her a very famous female spy who was also a playwright, believe it or not, called Afra Ben. So I became fascinated by that too and I tried to go back and look at what would have happened to someone who was very early, it was a trailblazer. I like to look at the trailblazers. So, yeah, and, and of course chocolate making the chocolate maker's wife, it's very easy to see what hers is. But I've also done candle making. I've just completed a novel about fishwives, which is about women in the very early um, fishing industry. I use that term very lightly in Scotland. That's in the 1700s, but it also has witchcraft involved. And I'm just about 
Um, I've just started yesterday, actually, a new book which looks at not only the wool trade and women's role in the wool trade, but also the oldest profession in history, and that's prostitution. I was thinking, reading The Chocolate Maker's Wife, uh, I think going back in time to 17th century England would be extremely confronting for any modern person. Uh, you've got the plague to contend with, um, the Great Fire of London was around this time as well, but at least at the time you've set this book, coffee has arrived and is all the rage, and this tantalising new drink chocolate is being poured greedily down the gullets of London's high society. Um, and of course, Rosamund, your character, becomes a purveyor of this new delicacy. How did you become interested interested in the arrival of chocolate in London? Yeah, it was really an accident. I was actually over in England um, doing on-the-ground research for the locksmith's daughter, and I went out to Hampton Court, which was where Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, spent a, a great deal of her childhood. And lo and behold, I stumbled upon this thing called a chocolate kitchen. And there were all these amazing, gorgeous instruments. It was only a tiny little room. And I remember reading, you know, the information that said there was no one around and the information there um, that's available for tourists. And it, it spoke about how it was a drink and um, King William was the king that they were referring to, um, had his own designated chocolate maker. And then there was a portrait on the back wall not very far from where I was standing and it really caught my eye and it was a very homely-looking woman named Grace Tozier who was the very first female chocolate maker. And now she was in the very late 1600s, if not early 1700s, and um, had a place in Greenwich that became renowned for its decadence and hedonism and naughtiness and what went on behind its closed doors and all those drinking chocolate. And I became fascinated by her and I immediately thought, I'm going to write about her. But then again, I thought, no, 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 chocolate was quite well established and I wanted to go back to earlier when it first came to England so that, that sort of governed my decision to set it. It opens in 1662 and place an ingenue, someone who didn't even had never tasted chocolate, didn't know anything about it, um, so the reader could identify with her and her experiences of this fantastic new drink. Yeah, and that's why um, I think it was so lovely that you read that moment that Rosamond tasted it for the first time because imagining tasting something like that back then for the first time is um is quite inspiring because it is so delicious. Um, also, you mentioned before that you wrote the story about the brewery, but without drinking beer. Do you eat chocolate? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. And I made so many different chocolate drinks to get the tastes right. And the additives that they used to put into the chocolate were fascinating too. And I mean, we, we still, um, I think we're quite tame in our chocolate taste these days compared to what they did back then. They put um, things like chili in it, and um, oh, uh, 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 what, what's the ambergris? You know, the um, is it whale musk and oh, stuff wow. like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just some amazing things, and eggs and wheat, and um, because it was quite nourishing as well. But it, they, they, if you drank it straight, it was actually pretty awful because I tried that too. It was incredibly strong, bitter, and gritty. So it was only really um, once they started to put additives in, which the Spaniards and the French were very good at doing and England copied them, that it became really popular and much more drinkable. Because, of course, it wasn't eaten. It wasn't eaten for a long, long time. It didn't become confectionery for about another oh, 100 or so years. Wow, yeah. Um, I'm not sure about uh, us in the modern age not being very ambitious with mixing other things into chocolate because I'm pretty sure on the shelves last year I saw Vegemite mixed with chocolate. Oh, <laughs> oh, 
only in Australia, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it was taken off shelves pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> so you actually had a go at making chocolate in the way it would have been made back then? Oh, yeah, absolutely, except I didn't grind the cocoa beans because back then they had to do everything and make a, what was called a, a chocolate cake, which was actually ground cocoa beans that became like a patty or a paste, and then they break that up and dissolve it in hot water and use a molinillo, which was a, a spurred, um, like a swivel stick with little spurs on the end to break it all up and froth it, and then they'd add things into that. So I had Rosamond doing all that and taking us through that whole process, and people would request various additives for their chocolate and they had their favourite way of having their drink prepared. Yeah, and it was sort of uh, a quite a, a luxury product, would you say? Yeah, it was. What was interesting, it was about four times the cost of coffee, but coffee houses had been sort of established or were getting very established in London at the time the book set. Coffee houses were relatively new, but what they both did, and this is where they really changed the complexion of society in so many ways, is they not only welcome people from any class, providing they had the money, but they um, people were sober. So there they were, rather than being in taverns and inns and, you know, drinking all this ale, beer, wine, sack, cider, mead. People used to drink on average about five litres of alcohol a day. So wow. that's to put that in some sort of context, yeah. Whether they were kings or paupers or children, or children um, drank what was called small ale, which was watered down. But anyway... Most people were pretty much pissed most of the time, and I don't think we realised that. But coffee and chocolate meant that you suddenly had men, it was mainly men in these places for a long, long time, would have these really sober conversations. And, of course, coffee houses and chocolate houses also coincided with the birth of journalism as we know it. So things called news sheets were, were distributed in these places and literacy was on the rise. So you had this whole conflation of all these really interesting things happening. So people were reading the news, reading about war, foreigners, trade, um, and they were having really serious conversations. And the poor or the, the not so well off and not so privileged were learning about their rights and their freedoms and talking to other educated people like lawyers and things like that and starting to sort of um, become quite politicised. So coffee houses and chocolate houses posed initially quite a danger to the establishment. Wow, yeah, I, I really love that thread of the book about, uh, yeah, the, the news sheets starting to be disseminated around the city. Um, and as a journalist and columnist yourself, who, as we've heard, has had a fair bit of vitriol, uh, you know, thrown at you, uh, what was it like to examine journalism's beginnings in 17th century England? Did you see any parallels between, you know, how journalists are regarded by society then and now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, on the one hand, you have, um, you know, journalists are dealt or the fourth estate is um, considered with a mixture of regard and suspicion. And, of course, you've got now a whole range of forces trying to discredit um, what they do. Now, having said that, of course, there is some very poor journalism, but there's also an incredible amount of excellent ethical journalism. And But back then they peddled propaganda, they tried to undermine the powers that be, they tried to report accurately. But, of course, you had your rogues as well and your unethical practices but what really, really struck me when I began to research, oh, and sorry, and people did what they do now. You know, they risk their lives trying to report on war. They put themselves in dangerous situations. Um, if you printed uh, illegally, you could be put to death. That's how serious it was. And they had 
they gave out licenses to printing presses, and I think there were only 20 allowed in London at the time to, you know, to keep all these hundreds of thousands of people informed. So they, the king and his um, government had a really tight control on the press. But what really, really struck me and resonated with today was the term false news was first coined back then. No way. Absolutely. What? To completely discredit journalists. Yeah. I, I nearly fell off my chair. <laughs> looking at the research, this this academic book I was reading, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. This is just, I always say this, the more I read about the past, the more I I. I learn about the present and see things being replicated. And it's like, damn it, aren't we meant to learn from our mistakes? Yeah, you know? I thought that was the point of looking at history. Come on. <laughs> we seem to repeat them. But, yeah, so the treatment of journalists, even in its early days, was pretty much as it is now, but, you know, which which is, is troubling. It troubles me deeply. Have any of those news sheets, like, survived? Could you find any of the actual articles that were written and printed back then in your research? Yeah, look, there's wonderful websites now. There are, you know, fabulous librarians and historians that just are so generous. Like, they they scan all these documents and they make them available online. So there are sites you can go to. Sometimes it's with a cost, but it's worth it. And I was able to actually read some of the original news sheets and... and, and um, I learned what what took took their attention, and and also the gossip. You know, the equivalent <laughs> of I guess we call celebrity pages existed back then too, and like they'd report things like stolen horses, what ships were in dock, um, uh, when there was a candle auction occurring somewhere, whether it be for sale of hemp or land, and and just you know whether some um, Rake had had uh, taken off his pants and ran around Drury <laughs> Lane. I'm serious. I'm serious. So yeah, wonderful things like this. And what what that sort of does is it forms a bridge between the past and the present too. And you realise that we're all just human, and we have the same likes and dislikes. You know, loves and loss and um, things that amuse and bemuse us. It's all the same. You're known as a writer who researches your your settings and your stories really deeply and um, you weave that research into your book so beautifully. Um, what were the sort of uh, documents you found or people you interviewed or places you visited that really helped you visualise this, this setting of 17th century London? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I have to acknowledge other writers because, you know, the, not just the historians but great fiction writers who also, I guess, you know, take great care and love with their stories and 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 set them accurately. And they're just oh, they're just worth their weight in gold. So those for, for starters. Then there was contemporary documents. So everything from um, as I said, the newspapers of the time to poetry. I listened to the music of the era too, which puts you in in that sort of um, space as well. The plays, um, but but I also I went to England again. And I hired the services of this wonderful historian who walked me through Restoration London. And I went, I went to the the site of the very first coffee house, Pakwa Roses. It was called the Turk's Head, and um, I knew then where I wanted to set my chocolate house. So I walked down the streets that Rosamond would have walked. I saw where her house was, but I also um, walked the limits of the Great Fire and the old walls of London. Look, just being in situ and and really helps, even though, because London's this amazing mishmash of the modern and the old. And if you look hard enough, you can sort of transport yourself back in time. It's really quite marvellous. 
And but you can also ignore it. And I think a lot of Londoners, um, contemporary Londoners, don't appreciate what they've got. Whereas it's easy for us, being a relatively new new country from the white perspective, to um, to go there and be fascinated by the past and, and lost in time. It's really quite wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really love just reading about. I think I'm. I'm so glad you mentioned the um, just everyone being drunk all the time thing because I, th- I think I read that on your website. And by the way, for anyone listening, if you want to spend a couple of hours just reading a really fabulous uh, amalgamation of historical research and book reviews and all this wonderful uh, blog posts, I really recommend your website, Karen, because it's just absolutely fantastic. I spent hours there. <laughs> and, and um, that's why I read this this uh this thing about the alcohol and how people didn't really drink water because um, it was so dangerous too. So everyone just drank litres and litres of ale and alcohol all day long. I was like, no no wonder that there are so many wild stories from back then because everyone was just on it <laughs> for the entire yeah, time. To war and, yeah, I know, I know, and made these incredibly important political decisions. Uh, yeah, it, it fascinated me too and it's hard to wrap your head around. But again, some of the alcohol was much stronger than we drink now, but a lot of it was um, watered down too. But yeah, to drink water was just not, not people did not do it. It was so contaminated and um, people died drinking the water, the water supply. Yeah. Um, what else about this time of 17th century England makes it a very unique time in history that you're aware of as you're writing? Every period has its own sort of uniqueness and structures and things that leap out at you and make you want to write about it. And I keep moving through historical periods and promising myself I'll go back so I don't waste all the research I do. But what was particularly fascinating about this period, and particularly from 1660 onwards, was there was a confluence of sort of really interesting social changes. So for a start, in in England, never mind Europe too, but England, you had the change from a republic back to a monarchy. So um, you had Charles I had been beheaded, Oliver Cromwell had come to the throne and set up a republic and a Puritan republic. All this was, um, after he died, it wasn't successful and it was rejected. And Charles I's son, Charles II, was brought back into England and he introduced this era of what's, I guess, was perceived as decadence and hedonism and all that sort of stuff. But it was also a time where they think that women's rights or historians report that women's rights rose and they were never seen as being um, significant or important again until really the suffragette movement in the 19, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. So that was really interesting. You also mentioned before about this time that one of the things that was happening were uh, obviously with the um, increase in journalism and that sort of thing that people's literacy levels were starting to increase. And I guess that's sort of tied up with uh, with women's rights movements as well, because literacy is such an important part of being independent. Um, your character Rosamond is illiterate, and that's quite a barrier to her, at least at the start of the book. Um, what made you decide to make your main character illiterate? Rosamond, in effect, reflects many of the women, particularly at that time, who who were illiterate. But literacy was on the rise. It was available. Schooling for men, particularly, was was coming to the fore. But I I had her becoming literate, and therefore was able to note the changes that that brought into her life. How being educated allowed what she learned to transform not just her life but others as well, and how education actually does that, that that is the beauty of education and always has been. And it's empowering. And I wanted to show how Rosamond went from being someone who was kind 
and thoughtful and intelligent but didn't have the tools to actually enact not just personal change but social change and of course she's able to do that. So she reflects I guess the wider movement that was occurring at the time. And uh, when we meet Rosamond in The Chocolate Maker's Wife, she's down on her luck, to say the least. Um, But she is such a charismatic character from the start. What is it about her as a character that enables her to turn her life around in such a dramatic way? That's a great question. I think she's, she's fundamentally kind and she has a really good heart. And she puts faith in herself and others. And... I I don't know, I think it's really easy to dismiss goodness as a character trait, but I somehow wanted to make that a really integral part of who she was. So she enters into any transaction that she makes, and, you know, from reading the book, she enters into a few with with good intentions and goodwill. So it was, um, though she's not always rewarded for that, she never lets her faith in human nature be diminished and um, continues to trust. And, of course, as her literacy grows and her awareness grows, her perception changes but never, never her kindness and her ability to, um, to, I guess, enact change for others. I think we mistake kindness for weakness, and that's one thing I didn't want to do. Rosamond is a really strong character. She's resilient. She's smart. She's a survivor. She refuses to be a victim no matter what the circumstances and what she can't change, she adapts to. And, um, of course, her increasing literacy enables that to be, um, I guess, more dramatic. People reading The Chocolate Maker's Wife, me included, and listening to that part that you were reading at the start of the podcast, are going to be so curious to taste this form of chocolate that you drink back then. Where can you go to sample this kind of chocolate? Oh, that's a great question. I... I, my kitchen. I spent <laughs> hours in my kitchen trying We'll leave to- your address in the details of the yeah, podcast yeah, then. <laughs> we'll, we'll just drop by any time. Yeah, no, no. Um, it's ghastly. The, the, the drink, as they had it originally, completely unadulterated, not, there is that moment where Rosamond does that, um, is absolutely disgusting. Then you start with the additives and it becomes increasingly more lush and gorgeous. And remembering that sugar was still, you know, a very expensive additive then too, but they had other ways of sweetening the drink because it was incredibly bitter and gritty um, without anything else in it. Um, But, but I had the most wonderful drink of chocolate in Venice of all places where the spoon literally stood up in the cup. Um, On a very, very cold day, I drank two cups of that, made myself sick. Yeah, it was gorgeous. And then the other place, funnily enough, was in a, a little cafe called the Coco Tree in Pittenweem in Scotland, where it just so happens my next novel is set, which was sort of an accident. And, um, you know, I went there to find one story and found another. And, um, yeah, I had this marvellous drink of chocolate there too. Fantastic. Um, Karen, before we let you go, you are also, as I mentioned before on your website, quite a prolific book reviewer. So once people go out and uh, buy and devour The Chocolate Maker's Wife, do you have any recommendations? Oh, gosh, don't get me started. Yeah, um, I I do actually. I can't go past Boys Follows Universe by Mm. Trent, who's a colleague of mine. Absolutely fantastic book um lost in that the lost man by jane harper another great australian writer but i also love a really good fantasy and i have to say liani taylor's uh duet um 
uh, The Muse of Nightmares is the second book in it, which I just recently completed. And to me, it's like inhaling poetry. I just think she's the most gorgeous writer. I love the Shard Lake novels by Sansom. I could just keep going. Um, Wimmera by Mark Brandy. I've just this moment about to finish um, Scrublands, Scrublands, which is just a marvellous uh, down-to-earth Australian uh, crime book. I, I'm a big fan of crime. But I also have really enjoyed, too, Michael C. Grumley's books. Now, he's a self-published author who takes great care with his books and he's written a wonderful science fiction sort of fantasy series that um, if everybody just looks up Michael C. Grumley, he's great. And also I absolutely love um, Dervla McTiernan's books too. I've just finished recently The Scholar. Yeah, fantastic. So many great Aussie writers in there. I love that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I try to really... Um, Look, we've got some marvellous authors here and I think that we don't appreciate it often enough how good good our writers are and they certainly hold their own and they're getting real recognition on the world stage, which is just so wonderful to see. Absolutely. And what a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so <laughs> much, Karen, for um, joining me to chat about this awesome book. I've absolutely loved listening to your answers and reading this amazing book. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Angus. I appreciate it. I really do. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. The Chocolate Maker's Wife is out now from HQ Fiction and is available at all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.